Hello, and welcome to Radio KBPV, a podcast for tales of the Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This is the Talking Tombstones edition, recorded at the Fort McLeod Union Cemetery, August 24th, 2019. Next up, Gord Tolton, historian and coordinator with the Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village, tells us the tale of Stephen Lawson. Face front troopers, my name is Stephen Oldacres Lawson. My last posting was as Constable, Alberta Provincial Police, Coleman, Alberta, where my end came prematurely nearly a century ago due to the terrible misunderstanding and mostly due to a ruinous law. But mine is not to editorialize. My duty is to uphold the laws of the province of Alberta. Tonight I stand once more to report on the events of September 21st, 1922. But first, allow myself to tell a little bit about myself. I was born in Brixton, England on June 8th, 1880, where my grandfather had been an Anglican priest. But that was not for me. I immigrated to Canada in 1903, where at Lambeth, Ontario, I was employed as, of all things, a singer. Again, not my thing. I wished to see the West, and I arrived to the community of MacLeod in the spring of 1904. Settling in MacLeod, I obtained work briefly as a special constable for the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. I was a teamster for them for about three years, briefly tried my hand in ranching, and then I joined the McLeod Town Police Force as a night constable in 1907. In 1908, I was appointed Chief Constable of the McLeod Police and held that position for 12 years. That same year, I met and married Maggie Ray McKenzie. The years following were happy ones, as I became father to the twins, Stephen and Maggie Jr., Mary Lucy, Dorothy Pearl, and Kathleen May. I also took active roles in the community belonging to the Masons and other organizations. Then came the Great War. On March 27, 1916, I enlisted in the 13th Canadian Mounted Rifles and went overseas with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Due to my police experience, I attained the rank of sergeant and transferred to the Fort Garry Horse while in France on October 29, 1917. I was invalidated with French trench fever while at Riflewood on the 1st of April, 1918, but I returned to the front, later receiving the Military Medal for Valor. The citation reads as follows. On the 9th of October, 1918, in the attack of Bois-de-Mont-Ville-Wid, Sergeant Lawson, Lawson showed great courage, killing several of the enemy, also capturing 17 prisoners with a small patrol which rallied on the, after the charge. Throughout, this non-commissioned officer showed splendid courage and devotion to duty. With the armistice, I was able to return to my former position as Chief Constable of McLeod in 1919, but I returned to a province changed. Women were voting and serving in the legislature. A farm movement was poised to become the government, but most seriously, a public plebiscite had brought about the prohibition of alcohol as a means of controlling the violent effects of drunkenness. That would all backfire. With British Columbia under similar legislation, the Crowsness Pass became a literal background in the war on whiskey. I left my position in McLeod in May 1920 to become Chief of Police in Fernie. I was willing to enforce the prohibition laws with renewed vigor and did so in Fernie. I raided the Northern Club Cafe in August of 1920 and fined the restaurant $1,000 for having liquor on the premises. Convictions for my arrests stuck, and in my first month, I received a 100% conviction rate, mostly due to my meticulous record-keeping and dogged enforcement tactics. 
Prohibition in British Columbia was repealed on June 15th, 1921, leaving my command to deal with only petty crimes and vagrant cases, which quite frankly bored me. But the appeal also made BC a wet territory and Alberta a dry, where an underground market for strong alcohol promised profits that far outstripped the fines, smuggling booze over mountain roads into the past communities. After the Volstead Act was passed in the United States in 1920, an extended network ran the liquor through the foothills and into Montana. The Royal Northwest Mounted Police of the day refused to enforce prohibition laws, leaving that duty to the Alberta Provincial Police. The APP was to post 50 officers to the Crow's Nest Pass. I resigned from my position in Fernie and, and applied to be a part of that garrison to suppress the illegal liquor traffic plaguing the provincial border country. I enlisted in the APP on March 12, 1922. I was posted to Coleman in the Crow's Nest Pass, moved my family into the little quarters that also served as the police detachment to help combat the liquor trade. That led to my awareness of Emilio Pecarello, a prosperous hotelier and businessman of the Crow's Nest Pass. Pecarello straddled the diverse ethnic divide of the pass and his wide circle of friends called him the Emperor Peck or just Peck. But the emperor led a double life behind his wealth and popularity as the leading figure behind the illicit liquor business and profited greatly from prohibition. Supporters of the law were critical of the police for their lagged process in catching bootleggers like Pick, but Attorney General John Brownlee reported that the general public and the courts were also culpable in their nudge and wink approach to the rule of law. Pick's business was no secret in the past where the liquor ban was a joke. Pick could still sell the watered-down temperance beer in his hotel and not arouse any attention. Anyone who wanted a drink could get one and didn't care who was supplying. If Pick could provide, all looked the other way when his loud piano player, player piano drowned out the noise of bottles being unloaded and unloaded in the basement. Amongst Pick's circle of cronies was his son Steve Picarello and Carlos Sandelfi, also known as Charlie Lissandro, his chauffeur and hotel manager. manager. San Fidelis, Young bride Philomena took on the name of Florence Lissandro, and she also worked among their operation. Pick's flaunting of the law enraged those of us in the Alberta Provincials, and we were always trying, mostly unsuccessfully, to catch his confederates driving those high-powered McLaughlin six-banger sedans full of liquor on a daring run from Fernie. But the afternoon of September 21st, 1922, we were ready for Pick and his son Steve. As the two returned from the Fernie Run, each in separate vehicles, the police were tipped off from a source in BC that they were approaching. I was in constant phone contact with my comrades in Blairmore, and I could inform them when the rum runners sped through Coleman. Members of our force would be waiting for the bootleggers at Pick's Alberta Hotel in Blairmore, but somehow Pick got into town before the police were in position. Steve was still yet to drive in. Sergeant Scott ran around to the back of the hotel where Pick was leaning against his car. His car was a decoy and thus dry of the contraband. Well, the sergeant walked up to serve his search warrant, but as he did, Pick reached into the car and blasted the horn. As it sounded, couldn't, sorry. Uh, as it sounded, the policeman heard Steve Piccarello wheel his car around in the dusty street. Stepping on the gas, the McLaughlin 6 sped off west, trying to make it back to the BC border. Well, the APP could not hope to catch up. Their vehicles couldn't compete with the McLaughlins. Both of the whiskey cars had to get through the Coleman to get back to BC, and where my house had a telephone. 
I took the call and rushed over to the road where the cars would have to pass my position as I stood to intercept. Pick somehow slipped away again, but in Coleman, with my revolver drawn, town police chief Houghton and I met Steve's car. Steve hit the gas and swerved around me and kept on going. I pursued Steve Piccarello in a con and in the chase shot at his car again. Young Peck made it across the border, but I followed anyway. My car had a flat tire and he eluded me. One of the bullets I'd fired had hit Steve Piccarello in the hand and he stopped for medical attention at Natal where a BC provincial policeman held him. Thus, a lapse in communication began a chain of events. Throughout the rest of the day, Pick stewed about the fate of his son. Unaware of his whereabouts, the rumor came back that his son had been shot and killed by the APP. Steve, though wounded, was safe in custody. But learning of that did not cool Emilio down at all. He could not determine where the boy was. Angrily, he turned over his network until he got the name of Constable Lawson as the responsible party for Steve's wounding. Pick decided to confront Lawson at my re myself at my residence in Coleman. For reasons unknown, Florence Lissandro got into the car with him. I was having supper with my family when Piccarello pulled up to the house, but I met, the either, I met them before either party could get out, and I talked to Pick through the side window. We argued about where Steve was, and I replied that I did not know where he was being held. Pick menacingly brandished an automatic pistol. I grabbed for the gun, but several shots rang out from Pick's gun, shattering the front windshield and grazing Florence. As I turned to retreat, Florence panicked, produced a 38 pistol, and fired into my back. I reeled backwards and slumped to the ground at the corner of the house, in front of my horrified wife, Maggie, and two of my children. I bled out and died as Pick and Florence roared away. On September 25, 1922, McLeod said goodbye to its former chief at the site in Union Cemetery with full military honors. Flags were flown at handstaff, businesses closed and schools dismissed in respect for they had for one of their own. Even as I was laid to rest, special constables were authorized to work with the RNWMP to hunt down and apprehend my killers. Piccarello was found hiding in Blairmore and Florence Lissandra was arrested shortly after. Both were charged with my murder and remanded to the provincial jail in Lethbridge. The four-day murder trial in Calgary was held in November of 1922. Tragically, my 13-year-old daughter, Peggy, was called to testify and subjected to cross-examinations for an hour, breaking down and audibly weeping at one stage. But Peggy exhibited an unusually keen mind. The trial was a questionable affair of who actually fired the killing shots, However, Emilio Piccarello and Flores Lissandro were tried together and convicted of the murder of a police officer. Both were sentenced to death by hanging. Despite the appeals from the courts, the Justice Minister and the Prime Minister, they were executed at the Fort Saskatchewan Penitentiary on May 2nd and May 3rd of 1923, respectively. Emilio was 43, Florence was 22 years of age. They were buried next to each other in unmarked graves. Florence Lissandro remains the last woman sentenced to capital punishment in Canada. Oh, I'm not done. There was a great political fallout from the trial and my murder. Since 1915, the illegal tra trade of the Prohibition era caused liquor to be profitable, enough that many Albertans willing to defy and break the law, and some willing to kill for it. The Piccarello case brought the Prohibition issue back to the ballot box where it had began. 
On November 5th, 1923, Albertans voted to discard prohibition. Yay. On May 2nd, 1924, it was repealed and replaced with the Alberta Liquor Control Board to manage sales of a controlled substance. And there are no good stories about the Alberta Control Board. <laughs> <laughs>